Welcome to Design for Joy, the radio ministry of Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California, celebrating the fact that God's people are designed for the joyful Christian life. We are glad that you could join us for today's broadcast with our pastor and teacher, Dr. Mark Mafucci. And now, let's go to the teaching for today. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Hebrews, the first chapter. The book of Hebrews. Today we begin a series of messages that will take us through this book, the book of Hebrews. And here's the key concept today. The final word is Jesus. The final word is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 is our passage. And while you're finding that, let me just provide a little bit of an introduction to this great book. It sounds odd in our ears. But the very first Christians were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. The first place that they worshipped were synagogues. Christianity was first viewed by both friend and foe as a Jewish sect. And as this slowly changed and Christians began to be seen as an entity all on their own, it raised all sorts of questions for these Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. What about the temple? What about the sacrifices? What about the laws of Moses? How do we relate to these things that we grew up trusting and celebrating? What are we to think of our, ourselves and how do we comprehend these new ideas in relationship to the old traditions? These are the issues of the book of Hebrews. And the central theme of this book is this. Jesus has triumphed, has triumphed over it all, and he is the central truth of all reality. It'll take us 10 weeks to get through this book. And Hebrews is a great book for those of us who enjoy puzzles, because there's a lot about this book that we don't know. For instance, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know who received it. We don't know the date when it was written. We don't know the circumstances of the writing. Even the literary style of Hebrews is confusing. Is it a letter? Is it a sermon? But from the text, clues do emerge. And what it appears that we have in the book of Hebrews is we have a sermon turned into a letter sent to a church meant to be read out loud. For this particular church was facing a crisis, a crisis of faith. And the crisis of faith was prompted by circumstances that they were facing, persecution that was coming on them, that was causing them to waver and to be tempted to pull away from their Christian commitment. It appears that the recipients of this book are a house church who have recently seen people leave their fellowship because of this hardship, walk away from their faith. They have come to faith, it seems, from a Jewish background. They are former Jews who now believe Jesus to be the true Messiah, who are followers of Jesus Christ, but they're wavering and they're wondering, would life be better 
if we would go back to Judaism? Would things be easier if we walked away from the faith? They are part of a Greek-speaking Jewish population in the Roman Empire. We know that for sure because all of the references that the writer makes to the Old Testament are made to the Greek version of the Old Testament that was circulating in the first century. That's the text that he quotes. And he quotes that text without seeking to explain the characters or the situations or the stories of the Old Testament. In other words, the author believes that his readers knew their Old Testament would quickly pick up on the references that he makes. And it seems that in this particular church, the gospel has been present long enough and they've been following the Lord long enough so that the first generation, if you will say that, the first set of leaders have either died or have been uh, retired, so to speak, from ministry leadership. And now there's a need for a new group of leaders to step up, to take their place, to grab the reins, and to continue the ministry. But they're wavering because of the difficulty. Most scholars believe that this would have been a house church, 15 to 25 people or so who gathered on a regular basis, and probably it was located in or near Rome. We get that from little clues throughout the book, and we get that from history because the book of Hebrews first shows up in history being used and being referred to by the first century father, Clement of Rome. The author was a highly educated Greek-speaking Jewish Christian. Hebrews contains the finest Greek in all of the New Testament, both in its vocabulary and its sentence structure. It is far superior to anything else and anything else written by the Apostle Paul. Sometimes people have thought maybe Paul wrote Hebrews because some of the similar themes are addressed in terms of Paul's writing in this book. But once you begin to read it in Greek, it's certain that Paul did not write it. It's not his style. It's not his wording. Hebrews contains 169 vocabulary words unique to itself, words found no other place in all of the Greek Bible. And as complex as the Greek sentence structure is, sometimes when it's translated into English, things can get a little muddy. You need to dig deep to understand Hebrews. But the overwhelming message is this. God is continuing to disclose himself. And that self-disclosure of God finds its ultimate expression in Jesus. The message is you'd be foolish to turn away from him, even if you experience temporary hard times, because ultimately he is victorious. The Hebrew author makes that case over and over again from the Old Testament. Hebrews is steeped in the Old Testament. In this first chapter alone, he quotes Psalm 2, Psalm 104, 45, 102, 110, as well as 2 Samuel and Deuteronomy, just in the first chapter. He's making the case that all of these scriptures that the, the, the Hebrew Christians know so well, all of these passages that they studied as children and were brought up on, all of them 
find their fulfillment in Jesus. He is the hope that they pointed to. It all builds to him. It all points to him. He's greater than the servants and the spokesmen and the prophets that have come before. He's greater than the priests and even the angels that we read about in the Hebrew Scriptures. The pattern of this book is an alternation. It's a sermon, you see, I think, meant to be read out loud, and it alternates between exposition and exhortation. What that means is it alternates between telling the truth about God, but then commanding obedience based on that truth. Truth is meant to be obeyed. So let's begin. To read the, the book of Hebrews, the first verse, the first chapter, you follow along as I read, and we'll just dive in. It says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to them. The first thing that the author tells us is that God is a communicator. God is a being who speaks. He is not a force. He's not a philosophy. He's not an abstract concept. He is a speaking being, communicating about himself. And had he chosen to remain silent, we would not know him and we would all be lost. We need to understand that God's speaking is an act of compassion. God's revealing himself as an act of love. And he's spoken through the prophets and the forefathers. In other words, he's saying that when they spoke, it was God speaking. He's chosen to use people as his go-betweens to communicate his truth. And he's spoken with lavish variety, in many settings, with many methods. To Joseph, he spoke in dreams. To Moses, he spoke through the burning bush. He spoke to Joshua through an angel, and to Samuel, he was the voice in the night. To Elijah, he was the still, small voice. And to Daniel, he came in visions and dreams. And each time he spoke, he revealed a little bit more about himself, a little bit more about his truth and his plan and the hope that is ours. God takes the initiative to communicate, and he gave these men his truth, and he told them what to say. And they wrote it down. God has spoken. And we're glad that he has. We rejoice that he has taken the initiative to speak. Thank goodness he's a communicator because we human beings oftentimes suffer in communication. We get things wrong very, very often. I was reminded about a story. The main character in the story is Big Ed. And Big Ed lived in a small town out in the country, and one of the great things that happened every summer was the revival preachers would come through. And Big Ed went to the revival tent meeting that came to his small town. And at one point in that service, the preacher said, if anybody here has a prayer request, if you need something to, to, to be done and we can, we can pray for you, you come to the front. And Big Ed went to the front. 
And Big Ed came up on the, on the platform, and the preacher asked him, what, what should we pray for for you, Big Ed? And he said, Preacher, pray for my hearing. With that, the preacher put one finger in Big Ed's ear, put it right in his ear, and the other hand on top of his head, and he prayed for Big Ed's hearing. He shouted and he yelled and he screamed and he just prayed out an urgent prayer for Big Ed's hearing. And at the end of that prayer, he kind of popped his finger out of his ear and he looked Big Ed in the eyes and he said, Big Ed, how's your hearing now? And he said, well, I don't really know, preacher. It's not till next Thursday in the courthouse. Whoops, right? And whoops happens all the time as people seek to communicate to one another. But it never happens with God. His communication is always perfect, and it comes to a crescendo in Jesus. Look at verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. In these last days. The truth of God's revelation hasn't moved from that which is less true to more true or that which is less worthy to more worthy. Even though God's revelation is progressive, it does, all of it is true and all of it is worthy, but it's moved from promise to fulfillment, and Jesus is the fulfillment. In order to make that perfectly clear, the author then piles on seven facts that he wants you to know about Jesus to portray who he is. Seven aspects of our Lord. And the first thing he says uh, in, in verse 2 is he's the heir of all things. Let's read on. It says, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Those are the two first two facts he wants you to know about Jesus. First of all, he is the heir of all things. That's an allusion to Psalm 2, where God says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. God is speaking those words to David and the, the royal lineage of David, of which Jesus is the completion. He is the root of Jesse. He is the son of David, who is the forever ruler, the heir of all things. Jesus owns it all. But secondly, he has made it all. He is the creator, he says, of the universe. The Son of God was active in the creative effort of God right in the beginning. And the wording there is significant because the word that the NIV translates universe in Greek is the word aeons. It's come over into English as eons. Now, we usually use that to refer to time, but the usage here is he's saying Jesus was significant in creating space and time. In other words, he exists before and outside of space and time, and he was instrumental in calling it to be. The third thing he wants you to know picks up in verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. There's three things in verse 3 he wants you to know. He is the radiance of God's glory. That's the first one. He, he, he shines the glory. As the light shines forth from the sun, so Jesus shines the glory of God. And as he does so, he does it correctly. But the fourth, fourth thing he wants you to know, he is the exact representation of who God is. At his essence, in the substance of what he is, he is the same as God. 
The word that the NIV translates exact representation in verse 3 is the same word that is used in Hebrews 11 where it says faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, the substance, the stuff that Jesus is made of is the same as that which is God. He is God. And fifthly, he sustains all things. Not only did he create the universe, he is keeping the universe running. The image is that the universe would falter, would fall apart, would break down like a broken machine if it wasn't for God the Son in the center of it all sustaining creation. And how does he sustain it? By his word. Simply by speaking the words, he keeps everything that is going And lastly, in verse 3, and he has provided purification for sin and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Those are the sixth and the seventh thing he wants you to know about Jesus. This being that created all that is and keeps everything going did what no one else could do. He came and made a way for you and me to be washed clean of the guilt of our sin, to be cleansed and purified so that God sees us spotless in judgment. And seventh, he sat down, finally being glorified in heaven with his work completed, and he's there now. These seven things the author wants his readers to hear about Jesus, because what he's done is just verbally over and over again smash to smithereens the idea that anyone or anything is greater than Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus as ultimately powerful. And there's a reason for that. Because he wants you to believe that he's able to keep his promises to you. When he says, blessed are the meek, he will see to it that the meek are blessed, even though the world system doesn't look like that. When he says nothing can separate you from the love of God, you can take that to the bank. You will always be loved by him. When he declares that he works all things together for good to those who love him, you can depend on that as a rock-solid promise. Something good is coming in your life. When he promises there is a day when we will experience no pain, no death, no fears, no sadness, get ready because that day is coming. Trust his promises. The point is, that's what we're called to. We're called to trust him. Don't slip back. Don't slip away. Don't slip towards sin. The people who were listening were wavering. You see, all sin is a manifestation of lack of trust in God. If we perfectly trusted God, we would do his will and we would run after his will. But sin is lack of trust. It's trying to play the game by our own rules, thinking that somehow I can devise a better, happier life if I disobey the Creator. This is a call to trust, but it's a call more than that, to let God the Son love you through and through, for He is the climax of God's communication. In verse 2, the author says, in these last days... Jesus has spoken to us. Why does he call it the last days, 2,000 years ago when he writes these words? It's because there is no next phase of God's work that's going to happen in history. 
The program that we see outlined for time and space in the Bible is God's final program. It takes us to the end of time and to the end of history. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God in a position of majesty, but also in a position of finality. It's now running its course. The universe is on track. These are the last days. There is no time for turning away. The point is that Jesus is the ultimate communication. It's fascinating to me as I read verses 2 and 3, and I consider the way that the author relates Jesus to time. He says this, in the past, Jesus created all things. In the present, Jesus is sustaining all things, keeping the universe running. In the future, Jesus is the heir of all things. In other words, he's making the case, no matter how you look at this picture, Jesus is the center point of reality. No matter where or when you look, the issue is always Jesus. And then, as if it just is an add-on thing, in verse 4 he says, and he's greater than the angels. And really, the rest of the chapter is the author talking about how much greater Jesus is than the angels. Scholars wonder why he spent so much time on that issue. Some think, well, maybe there was a heresy that was being circulated in that day, and maybe this is a reaction to a heresy that teaches that the angels are more important than Jesus. If that's the case, we don't have any evidence of that heresy. It might have been the case, though. But what I think is going on here is that it's all part of the same argument, all part of the point that the author is making, that Jesus is the final revelation, the final word. Because, you see, it was understood that the angels aided in giving the law of the Old Testament. Paul refers to that in Galatians chapter 3, where it says, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. But the author here is making the point, even the angels worship Jesus. The angels, even though the truth that they gave is worthy and mighty, still they worship Jesus. Even though they are beings that if we would encounter them, they would be so awesome, we would be tempted to worship them, yet they worship Jesus. Even though every time an angel appears in Scripture, he first has to say, fear not. Why? Because we panic when we see them. Still, they worship Jesus. The Apostle John in Revelation 19 himself gets confused and begins to worship an angel, and the angel says to him, worship God alone. But they worship Jesus. Jesus is greater. He is the issue. At the cradle in Bethlehem, the cosmic endgame began, and it will be worked out in ways that will take us outside of time and outside of space, and Jesus is in charge of it all. This is the point where Hebrews begins. And why is he making that point? Because his readers were in danger, and that danger is backsliding. Backsliding is an old-fashioned word. When's the last time you heard backsliding? But it is both an ancient and a modern problem. Ba backsliding is slipping away from what is the most important reality. Backsliding is caring more about temporary things than the eternal. And the reality is, you see, this 
great being invites you to know him, to live on mission with him, to be a part of his eternal purpose. And backsliding is pulling away from that. Why would you do that? Backsliding is focusing more on the pleasures of the world, on the opinions of man, on the possessions that entice, and turning away from the things that are greatest. Backsliding was their danger, and it is ours. There are those who walk away from Christ, seeking pleasure, seeking fame, seeking money, seeking acceptance, trying to fit in, running after romance or educational advancement. We trade in our spiritual birthright cheaply, and it's a bad trade because everything is less than listening to Jesus. But even if we stray, he is there to welcome us back. Even though we wander, Jesus welcomes us in again if we turn to him. That's the plea that the author is making. And he's making it to us as well through the Holy Spirit. The hymn writer writes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Jesus is always better than any truth the world offers. This falling away is just what the Hebrew Christians were at the cusp of. It's just what the author is warning them against. And he's saying to them and to us, do not turn your back on the one who is ultimate. Do not lose your heart to a lesser love that will leave you empty. Cling to Jesus. Run to Jesus. For he is God's perfect and final word. And he is the radiance of his glory. You have what is ultimately worthy if you have Jesus.